Please turn your attention to Judges chapter 2. We're going to continue in our series in this book, Judges chapter 2. And I'm going to read this morning beginning in verse 6 and then right through to chapter 3, verse 6. Judges chapter 2, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, the whole generation had been gathered together to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them up out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed these nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would meet us in your word and speak to us. We pray that you would ready our hearts and our wills to receive and respond. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our second week in this series in the book of Judges, and I understand this is not a very common book to do our sermon series on. There are challenges uh, in it, um, but there's a reason why we're preaching it, not just because it's good to face a challenge every now and again, 
But because, as I mentioned last week, there are themes in this book that I think are apropos for our times. Judges covers the period of the Old Testament between Joshua and the monarchy when there were no kings in Israel, when everyone did as they saw fit. It was a time in Israel when there was moral autonomy. It was a time of anti-authoritarianism, individualism, weak leadership. The world seemed to be falling apart. And yet, in the book of Judges, we're also reminded that God continues to work through hard times, through weak leaders, through seasons of disobedience and defeat. And he continues to call his people to spiritual renewal. And I hope that we hear this call in this series through Judges, this call that God will call us to spiritual renewal even in our cultural times. Uh, last week, the passage, Judges 1, was an introduction to Judges from a human perspective. And we looked at how Israel began to take the land that God had promised them. If you weren't uh, here last Sunday, I know we were recovering from a snowstorm. If you weren't here, this is another introduction. Our, Judges 2, our, the passage is read to you, is introduction number 2 to the book of Judges. This time, from a divine perspective. This chapter that I just read to you functions as kind of a summary and roadmap of Judges. It's kind of like this. If you visit a national park, one of the places you might go first is the visitor center, right? Because that's the visitor center. You will get an overview and or orientation to the park, which is oftentimes quite large. You can get a map of the park. You can see oftentimes videos that explain just certain features of the park that you don't want to miss or the history of the park. You can always talk to the park rangers that are eager to help you plan your visit. Like, what hikes should you do? How are you going to get around? Judges 2, Judges 2 is like the visitor center to the book of Judges. It, it provides for us an overview, an orientation to the book. So, if you want to understand the book of Judges, come to Judges 2. If you get Judges 2, you can grasp the whole book in a nutshell. Just getting into our passage, Judges begins after the death of Joshua. So the first few verses of our passage is kind of a flashback and recap of Joshua's life. Joshua is treated here, presented, as an ideal Israelite leader. He's called a servant of the Lord, just like Moses. He, we're told he lives to 110, his long life, and evidence of divine favor on him. He's buried in the land of his inheritance. Moses didn't get that, so this is blessing on Joshua. And we're told that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. They saw all the great things that the Lord had done for them. That's a backdrop, unfortunately, for things about to change. In verse 10, we're introduced to a new generation. And Judges 2, and moving forward for the rest of this book, shows us the danger of God's people serving other gods. After Joshua's leadership and life, what begins in Israel is a downward cycle with three elements. Idolatry, judgment, and grace. The people give in to idolatry. They serve the Canaanite gods, and God judges them by handing them over to their enemies. And the people groan under the oppression. They are, they're in misery. They're in distress. And God has mercy and shows them grace and sends a judge. And that lasts for a time before the people turn back to idolatry, and then judgment, and then grace. And so this cycle rolls forward and repeats over and over and over again through the book of Judges. God continually calls his people to spiritual renewal over 
and over. And of course, this is not just Israel's pattern. We also can fall into this same cycle. So I'd like to look at these three elements of this cycle this morning. It's an introduction to the whole book of, of Judges. I'd like to look at the idolatry we commit, the judgment we deserve, and the grace we receive. Judges 2 introduces us to these themes in a chiastic form. If you're a literary, you know what a chiasm is. In this case, it's an ABCBA form. That's how this passage works. So the beginning and end of this passage is section A and talks about the idolatry we commit. And then the intersection, ABCBA, the B section, is the judgment we deserve. And the center of this passage, the C section, talks about the grace that we receive. The idolatry we commit the judgment we deserve, and the grace that we receive. First, the idolatry that we commit. Listen to how the generation after Joshua is described. Verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. The question I want to ask is, what does that mean? I mean, how did they, how did they not know Yahweh and what he had done for Israel, how could they not know about uh, the pillar of fire and the and the crossing of the Red Sea and the, and the Exodus? I mean, it would kind of be like growing up in New York and not knowing the Yankees, or growing up in Manhattan and not knowing about 9/11. Like, how is that possible? I would suggest that the Israelites knew about God and the events of redemption, but they didn't know God and the events of redemption. They knew intellectually about God and the events of redemption, but, it, it, uh, but they didn't know it personally and experientially. For example, there are two ways to know that honey is sweet. You can know that honey is sweet intellectually because someone told you or because you read it in a book. You can also know honey is sweet because you've tasted it and you have that personal experience. I think the Israelite generation knew of God and his acts of redemption only intellectually, not personally and experientially. It didn't electrify their hearts. For example, Eli was a priest in 2 Samuel 2, and he had two very wicked sons. And the sons are introduced this way. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Priest's sons did not know the Lord. On the one hand, the sons of Eli, of course they knew the Lord. I mean, they, they were priest's sons, but they didn't know the Lord. In a sense of personal experience and reverence for him. They knew the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord. And because they didn't know the Lord, they did some very wicked things. We're told that the two sons, when the people would bring their offerings to the Lord, these two sons would help themselves with the best of the offering for themselves first. They would sleep with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all of Israel knew the wickedness of these two boys. In the same way, a generation of Israelites grew up without knowing the Lord. The result of that in Israel... Verse 11, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. Because their knowledge of God was only intellectual and factual, it didn't take too much for them to stop serving God and start serving Baal. Baal was a Canaanite god of the storm and fertility, of crops and livestock and family. And the Canaanites believed that the fertility of the land was dependent on the sexual relationship between Baal and his female consort, the Ashtoreth. 
And so one way a Canaanite man could encourage Baal's activity was to visit shrine prostitutes with the Canaanite man playing Baal's role and the prostate serving the Asherah's role. And by their own sexual activity, they could serve Baal through ritual prostitution and encourage fertility in the land. That doesn't take too much imagination to think about how the Israelites were tempted to serve Baal. I mean, think of this generation coming out of Egypt and entering into the promised land. They only knew desert life. They didn't know how to take care of land. They didn't know agricultural skills. And meanwhile, their Canaanite neighbors were thriving. He says to them, why, not, why don't we learn from the locals? Why don't we learn from the Canaanites? And perhaps the Canaanites were eager to help. Perhaps a Canaanite man engaged his Israelite neighbor this way. I, I know that your God brought you up out of Egypt, but you're not in Egypt anymore. You're in Canaan. And here, this is Baal's land. If you want to succeed in Canaan, you've got to worship Baal. In fact, I'm going up to the high place this afternoon. Would you like to join me? You'll have a great time. And it was like this, that Israelites stopped serving God and started serving Baal. Now, the very striking thing about this religious shift is it takes place in one generation. We're told in Judges 2 that the parents served the Lord and the children served Baal. How does that happen? And the parents knew God experientially and personally, but that was not transmitted to the next generation. The children's faith, was, faith only became intellectual. It was secondhand. It wasn't firsthand. It was just a secondhand faith. Tim Keller uses these three words to describe this process, commitment, complacency, and compromise. You see, when commitment to the Lord only becomes complacency, the next step is compromise. The end of our passage, there is a summary of this religious shift again, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The first step was, was living among the Canaanites and not driving them out. And of course, the people that you live among are going to influence you. So it's no surprise they began intermarrying with the Canaanites, and we know this. The person that you marry will greatly influence the second half of your life. I mean, you know, when I married Tina, I knew that she was from Florida. She was, a, you know, growing up in Orlando, was a huge Disney fan. So marrying this, of course I became a huge Disney fan. And for a season there, we were going to Disney every year. Israelites married Canaanites. So no surprise, they became Canaanites religiously and started serving Baal. Baal is a Canaanite word for Lord. And so the Israelites, what they were doing, they were forsaking Yahweh, the Lord, for smaller lords. They were leaving behind God, capital G, for little gods, small g. And I want to say this morning, this isn't, of course, a danger just in 1400 BC. We face the same danger living in a culture as we do of many gods. But I also want to say that it doesn't just take living in a culture of many gods to start serving other gods. John Calvin famously says that human heart, the human heart is an idol-making factory. What is an idol? It's a god substitute. It's something that you start looking to for your identity and security more than God. Tim Keller in his book on idolatry puts it this way. Idolatry is taking a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. 
So the most subtle idols in our hearts are good things. They are. They're good gifts of God. Our homes, our families, our cars, our jobs, our health, our comfort. But these good things can become God things, ultimate things, when we start looking to them for our security and identity more than God. These good things become God things and lords. And suddenly no longer are we serving God. We are serving them. Come with me back to Eli the priest and his wicked sons who didn't know the Lord. There is more to this story. We're told in 2 Samuel 2 that the problem wasn't just Eli's sons, it was also Eli himself. The problem was that Eli, when he saw what his sons were doing, he looked the other way. He never corrected them. When God confronts Eli about his sons, therefore, he says, why do you honor your sons more than me? On the outside, Eli served God, but in his heart, he served his sons. His sons became an idol to him in that they became more important to him than God. He couldn't cross them. He couldn't do them. He, he couldn't obey God. He had to obey his sons and what they wanted to do. Elise Fitzpatrick, in her book on idolatry, reflects on this. She says, as I look back over my life as a mom, I can see numbers of ways that I bowed to my children's demands rather than honoring God. I can see how I acquiesced to their desires and gave them what they wanted because I wanted to pamper them or make them happy. Sometimes I wanted to be their friend so much that I didn't care about my friendship with God. In my heart, I'm like Eli. There were times that I made an idol of my children's good opinion. My friends, I include myself in this. How easy it is to make our children into idols and begin centering our lives around them. I've known people who stopped coming to church because their children didn't want to come to church. Not because they didn't want to, but their children didn't want to come to church. In this area, this may be the number one idol, is our children. Good gifts, wonderful gifts. But how easily they become our idols. Here's the idolatry that we commit when we turn good things into ultimate things. Children, spouses, jobs, cars, money. Now, of course, for balance's sake, there is the danger of asceticism, and asceticism is turning good things into guilty things and saying, like, I, I just feel kind of guilty. Every time I enjoy a good thing, a good gift of God, I, just, I struggle with guilt. I have this book on my shelf. When I relax, I feel guilty. That, that's this mentality, and, and, and that's the danger of asceticism. First Timothy 6 says God created all these things for our enjoyment. We can enjoy these things and worship God through them. But that's not what this passage is about. That's the danger of asceticism. Judges 2 is about the danger, on the other hand, of idolatry, turning good things into ultimate things. Happens all the time, very, very subtly. And so the question is, how do I know if I've taken a good thing and made it an ultimate thing? Where do you struggle to surrender to God? What is that area where you really struggle to surrender God and you say maybe like, God, you can have everything, but not this. This is mine. There's an idol there. There's something that you're making more important than God. God, you can have this, but not this. You can't touch this. Where is it that you struggle with surrendering to God? Explore that area, and you'll oftentimes find an idol at the bottom. Where do you struggle with besetting sin? It's that sin that you, you say, I'm never going to do that again, and then you do it again. And you're like, I'm never going to do that again, and then you do it again. Look at the bottom of that besetting sin, and you oftentimes find an idol. 
And it's a besetting sin because you just deal with the sin, but you don't deal with the idol underneath the sin. To deal with that besetting sin, you have to recognize the idol and deal with the idol to deal with the sin. Sometimes we don't even know something has become an idol until we lose it. When we don't get that house bid, suddenly we're distraught. We're like, oh, I guess I was way more invested in that house than I thought. I'm, I'm, just, I'm wrecked that I didn't get that house bid. Or if we don't get into the college we want and we're wrecked by it, suddenly we realize, oh, I guess I was more invested than I, I thought. Sometimes it's not until we lose something that we realize that it had a hold on our hearts. If we can't let go of something or we go to pieces when we lose it, there might be an idol there. This is the idolatry we commit. Secondly, then, we need to consider the judgment we deserve. Look at verses 12 and 13. Because they served the Baals, they aroused the Lord's anger. Because they forsook him and served Baal. Now, perhaps you're not used to reading that God gets angry. Popular culture tells us that God is loving and forgiving, and that's absolutely right. God is loving and forgiving, but Judges 2 also tells us that God gets angry. It's not our anger. Our anger comes in a moment. It flares up because we don't get our way. We blow our top, and there are harsh words, and we lose our temper. And it's oftentimes, at the end of the day, for very petty reasons. It's unrighteous anger. God's anger is not that. God's anger here is righteous and consistent with his holy character. It is the flip side of his love. God's anger is an expression of his deep love for his people and his settled opposition for the evil that threatens them. So in Judges 2, there are two explanations for God's anger. One is in verse 11. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served Baals. They forsook the Lord who brought them out of Egypt after everything he did for them. They turned their back on him. It would be like parents raising up a child from infancy to young adult, to young adulthood and doing everything that, it, that involves from start to finish. I mean, first it's, it's diapers, then it's endless meals, then it's doctor's bills, then it's chauffeuring back to school and to school and back to school and sports activities, and then it's paying big college bills. And what if the, the, the child, when they're grown up, they say to you, well, thank you very much, but I want to have nothing to do with you anymore. I mean, you, you would rightly be upset. That would be an evil thing to do. And, and that's God's anger here. His own children, after everything he's done for them, Turn their back on him. That's one reason and explanation for God's anger. The second is in verse 17. The Israelites serve the Baals, and God, interestingly, calls it very dramatically prostitution. I mean, literally, it's prostitution after that explanation I, I gave you. But it's also spiritual prostitution. Because God is the people, not only the people's father and king, he is also their husband. Isaiah 54, 5 says, for your maker is your husband. And if this is the intimate relationship that God has with his people, therefore, when they forsake him for other gods, they are committing adultery. They are prostituting themselves to other loves. At the bottom of it, in one sense, all sin is adultery and prostitution. It's choosing another love over God. And I would suggest to you that it is a pretty apt metaphor for idolatry. I mean, what is prostitution? Prostitution is giving your body to temporary pleasure, but not having no lasting love. 
That's what idolatry is. It's giving yourself to temporary pleasure, but there's no lasting love. There's no lasting satisfaction. And how does God respond to this? Well, if there was a wife who was caught in adultery and her faithful husband heard the news and said, actually, you know, I don't mind. No, no worries. He'd be like, there, there's something wrong here. You, you mean you don't care? See, if a, a, you would say, well, do you really love your wife? Because if a faithful husband loves his wife and finds out that she's committing adultery, there will be a jealous anger as an expression of the deep love. There needs to be. If there's deep love, there's a righteous anger. And this is God's anger when his people turn away from him to seek other loves and other gods. It's the jealous anger of a faithful husband. God's judgment of his people is in verses 14 and 15. In his anger against the Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Again, this is not a petty tan temper tantrum on God's part. This is exactly what he said he would do if his people turned away to other gods. In Deuteronomy 28, before this ever happens, God lays out here are the curses for disobedience, and one is the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So God is doing exactly what he said he would do. He's following up on what he said the discipline would be. He gave Israel into the hands of their enemies. It was the judgment that they deserved. There is a similar judgment in Romans chapter 1, in the, in the, the passage that Roland uh, read for us earlier, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 forward, uh, and forward. When the people explain, exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things, the judgment in Romans 1 is not a thunderbolt from heaven. It's much quieter than that. The judgment is that God gives them over to their sinful desires. In other words, the judgment for idolatry is that God gives us over to our idols. He just pulls back and says, okay, I'll let you have what your heart wants. God gives us what we want. That's the judgment. He lets us face the consequences of our idolatry, which is slavery and destruction. And I would suggest to you that there is a reflection of this in good parenting. When I got into my first major car accident... You'll be surprised, I was living in New Jersey. It was on the Garden State Parkway. I mean, that's where accidents happen. It was stop and go traffic. I looked down to get coins for the toll booth. It was a number of years ago, obviously, the days before Easy Pass. I looked down to get coins for the toll booth and didn't realize that the car in front of me had stopped until I looked up and it was too late and I rear-ended the car in front of me. The repair bill was hundreds of dollars. My dad heard about it, and he could have bailed me out, but he didn't. I think it was good parenting. He let me face the consequences of my driving because sometimes this is the best way to learn is to, to face the consequences of our decisions. In Judges 2, we have God's judgment for idolatry. It is allowing his people to face the consequences of serving other gods. They face distress. And defeat. And yet I want to point out, even in this judgment, God has not turned away from his people. He is purposefully disciplining them, testing them, and teaching them. 
Where in the second half of our passage, three times we're told that God left the Canaanites in the land to test his people. There are educational purposes to testing, right? Your, your teachers give you a test so that, that they and you will know what is really in your, your head. How much has, has been retained? Like without a test, you don't really know how much you know. And God leaves the Canaanites in the land to test his people so that they know what is in their hearts. Chapter 3, verse 2, he leaves the Canaanites in the land to teach his people warfare. For the Israelites to learn warfare was to learn that they had to depend on God to win battles. The judgment we deserve is this. God lets us face the consequences of our idolatry. And in this, he's testing us that we might know our own hearts. And he's teaching us that we might learn dependence on God. So there's an idolatry we commit, there is a judgment we deserve, and then lastly, there is a grace that we receive. My friends, right in the middle of this passage, verse 16 is a grace that we receive. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Right in the middle of a chapter on the idolatry that we commit and a judgment that we deserve, God shows grace and mercy. He raises up judges who save his people from their enemies. And get this. There is no evidence that I can see of true repentance in this chapter. I mean, there's suffering. There's distress. There's great distress. There's groaning under oppression and affliction. But there's no cry for help. There's no evidence of true repentance on the people's heart. And yet God still responds, not because the people deserve it, but because God is gracious and merciful and compassionate. Judges 2 forces us to hold together two sides of God's nature. Back to back, verse 14 is God's anger and justice and judgment. And then verse 16, a few verses later, is God's grace in raising up judges as a way of telling us that God is holy and he's merciful. He's just and he's loving. You can't put him in a box. In Judges 2, the hand that is against his people is also the hand that is for them. There is judgment that we deserve, but there's also grace that we receive. God shows his people grace by raising up judges to rescue them from their enemies 12 times. God is long-suffering and patient. 12 times he raises up judges to rescue them. This is a pattern. But when the judge dies, we learn what happens. Verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so begins the downward cycle. Idolatry, judgment, and then grace. And anything that people change? No, then idolatry all over again, and then judgment, and then grace. And so what Judges puts before our eyes is the depth of human depravity, corruption, and waywardness. Judges shows us the power and progressive nature of human corruption. Over the holidays, I read a novel entitled Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang, who's a New York Times bestselling author. It's a satire of the publishing industry. It's a page-turner. 
It is about a young white writer named June Hayward who is struggling to find success as a writer. She can't break through, can't write that award-winning book. When her beautiful Asian super successful writer friend suddenly dies in a freak accident, June discovers an unpublished manuscript on her friend's desk. And in the moment when no one else is looking, she thinks no one will know, she decides to pass it off as her own and publish it. It's plagiarism. She becomes wildly successful and she gets the book deal that she always dreamed of getting. But all of her success is built on a lie that she must, she must keep covering up. She must keep maintaining her facade to maintain her success. She admits in the middle of this novel, that's been the key to saying sane through all of this, holding the line, maintaining my innocence. In the face of it all, I've never once cracked, never admitted the theft to anyone. By now, I mostly believe the lie myself. She tries to convince herself that she believes the lie that she's innocent, that her success is her own, but she can't let go of the guilt. The guilt in this book drives her mad. She knows deep down that her life is built on a lie that she must keep covering up, and it takes more and more energy to do that. On one level, this novel is a great depiction of the progress of white-collar corruption. One lie leads to another lie. One cover-up leads to another cover-up, and eventually it leads to June's unraveling. Judges shows us the progressive nature of corruption and human unraveling. True nature comes out when no one's looking, when all the constraints are off. It's kind of like what happens in a second-grade classroom when the teacher leaves for 10 minutes. <laughs> True nature comes out. When the judge dies, the people's true nature comes out. And they fall into corrupt and more corrupt ways. It's the Lord of the Flies all over again. It's this downward cycle. And it becomes clear in the book of Judges that no human judge can save. We need a better judge. One who can change our hearts, not just save our bodies. And my friends, that better judge comes in Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom God's prophecy through Ezekiel is fulfilled. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is the one whom the angel of the Lord announces in a dream to, Joshua, to Joseph. Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. My friends, Jesus is the one who can cleanse our hearts from the sins of idolatry. Jesus is the one who can change our hearts through his spirit to give us new desires and for obedience. Jesus is the one great affection that drives out all lesser affections. Jesus is the one great love that drives out all lesser loves. Jesus is the true judge whom God has raised up to rescue us from the grip of idols and gods. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that there is an idolatry that we commit. And there is a judgment that we deserve. We thank you that you don't leave us here, that you show us grace in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have raised up a deliverer for us, that there is forgiveness for all of our idolatry in him. And that in him, 
and through him and through his spirit, there is a new affection in our hearts and new desires for obedience. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.